Hey there, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. And on this podcast, we go in depth with leading experts from all walks of life to understand and improve your health and well being. Today, I'm talking with Lisa Hendricks and Jack all about the nuances of your menstrual cycle and the fertility awareness method. Basically, she covered the info we wished we got in high school. Lisa is a certified fertility awareness educator, holistic reproductive health practitioner, and author of The Fifth Vital Sign, Master Your Cycle and Optimize Your Fertility. She's also a frequent speaker on the topic of menstrual health and hosted the Fertility Friday podcast, which I highly recommend. It was an absolute pleasure talking with her today as she busted myths around when you can actually get pregnant, how long the egg actually lives, and what does all that cervical mucus mean? Here's a clip from today's conversation. I can't say I created this concept. It's starting to be more well-recognized in medicine. But generally speaking, a vital sign is simply a bodily response that you can monitor. And the most common ones are the heart rate, body temperature, respiratory rate, blood pressure, those kinds of things. And what was missing out of that junior high sex ed class is that our menstrual cycle can also be used as a vital sign. It's a real-time measure of what's happening in the body. And we can kind of break it down into these different phases and talk about what's normal in each phase. And interestingly, there's a lot of information you can gather. So something as basic as could you have a yeast infection if you're seeing mucus all the time outside of that short window when we would expect to see it? Or could you have a more serious issue? But we're kind of taught that our ovulation is like that. We're kind of taught that well, it's fine. It doesn't really matter. Okay, we'll put you on the pill or whatever. But we're not really taught, like, what does it mean if you're a woman of reproductive age and you literally stop menstruating? And so even if you don't want a baby, like that could be one of the signs of like HA, hypothalamic amenorrhea. And in a case like that, if you are going without a period for six months or more, it can increase your lifetime risk of osteoporosis. So we should just, it's a basic, basic information that we should all have. Unfortunately, we don't, but the menstrual cycle does act like a vital sign and something really important that we can pay attention to. That's just a small taste of the amazing show that we have for you today. Hey, before we get started, I want to talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that, of course, is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. And if you're an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you are placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health, and Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 25 different labs in one single place. Thank goodness, no need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. So if you are a practitioner, Make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create a free account today. Now, let's get on with the show. Lisa, welcome to the show. I am so excited to talk about this today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. You are the first that we're going to have on to really talk about periods, fertility, fertility awareness method. And so this is going to be fun because actually... One time I put up in my stories a quiz. I put up, how well do you know your cycle? How well do you know fertility facts? And one of my questions was, in your cycle, how many days can you get pregnant? And the amount of people who said all of them really <laughs> concerned me. And I thought, oh no, we our system has failed us massively. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not surprising, but it's also surprising, right? Because it's like, yeah, it's been so long, not that much has changed. Although at least some things have changed. <laughs> some things have changed, but still I thought every day, every day of the cycle, huh? So we're going to break that stigma and break that down. But before we do that, let's start with the basics. Why don't you do a quick introduction of yourself for those who don't know you or your book, which on the visual is sitting behind me. So people know who they're talking to. Sure. Well, so I'm Lisa Hendrickson-Jack, author of The Fifth Vital Sign. I'm a fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner. And I've been in the field for about 20 years, teaching women how to understand their cycles. And I mean, my own journey started with being on the pill and wanting to not be (laughs) and still wanting birth control that worked. So I was like, okay, condoms is is what's going to happen here. Because I grew up in the age when that was still taught to be effective. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is uh, apparently changed nowadays. Mm-hmm. And that's when I discovered fertility awareness. And so similar to the women who were responding to your story, I was taught that you could get pregnant every single day. There was no safe days. So all of the days were terrifying. And then I discovered fertility awareness, which really clarified a lot of things about the cycle, how it works. 
how you're not fertile every day, and how you can use that information to help you avoid pregnancy without hormones or optimize your chances for conception. And so I have been blabbing on about it ever since (laughs) and trying to do my part to spread the word because the education system has unfortunately failed us for the most part. And, And most women still don't know that this is a real thing. I've even had patients who, and in fact, I told the story before, but I had a woman in her, I believe her 50s, had kids, got divorced, starting to date again. And she was early 50s. So she was still having cycles. She was perimenopausal. And she was like, Carrie, I don't know. I don't know how I managed to have children or be, I'm dating again. What are my risks or chances of getting pregnant? Like, I I don't really understand my cycle or my age or being perimenopause or anything like this. And I thought, how did you get to your early 50s and just not know? You know, and she was hilariously funny. So we just got along great. But I thought, okay, if you can get to your 50s, have children, not realize, honestly, how to get pregnant. Like, we need this podcast more than ever. We need your podcast more than ever. We need your book more than ever. For sure. So true. So true. I speak to, so I usually don't get the women in their 50s yet. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say that. I I get a couple, but typically I'm getting women of all ages, but often it's the ones in their 40s that are just like, yeah, how am I just discovering this now? (laughs) And it's, yeah, there's always that kind of emotional reaction of, shock and excitement initially, but then like anger. <laughs> yes. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I have absolutely got that response too. So let's start with the obvious question. You wrote the amazing book, The Fifth Vital Sign. What made you call it that? I can't say I created this concept. It's starting to be more well-recognized in medicine, but generally speaking, a vital sign is simply a bodily response that you can monitor. And the most common ones are the heart rate, body temperature, respiratory rate, blood pressure, those kinds of things. And we all know that if you go to a doctor and they measure your vitals, not only is it giving some information in general about your health, but if there's a specific marker that's off, so let's say your blood pressure is high, it not only tells the doctor that something is wrong in general, but it also provides kind of a roadmap because we kind of know some of the things that would cause high blood pressure. And what was missing out of that junior high sex ed class is that our menstrual cycle (laughs) can also be used as a vital sign. It's a real-time measure of what's happening in the body. And often when I say menstrual cycle, you you think just period. But if we take you through the whole menstrual cycle, it starts on the first day of your true flow, like your period. And then once the period is done, where we move into that pre-ovulatory phase. And as we approach ovulation, there's several days of cervical fluid that we would expect to see, which we could talk about more, but Mm -hmm. clear, stretchy, raw egg white type and or lotion-y, hand lotion type. But we would expect to see the mucus for several days until we approach ovulation. And then once we ovulate, we would expect that to go away and to have then about 12 to 14 days before our period. And so we can kind of break it down into these different phases and talk about what's normal in each phase. And interestingly, there's a lot of information you can gather. So something as basic as could you have a yeast infection if you're seeing mucus all the time outside of that short window when we would expect to see it? Or could you have a more serious issue if you stop menstruating, if you're a woman of reproductive age, and all of a sudden you stop having ovulation and stop having periods, that could be something more serious. And so I think, unfortunately, what we're taught is that our cycle only matters when we're trying to have babies. And Mm -hmm. we're kind of, I often use the analogy of like, if I were to buy a car, if I were to put in like heated seating, it's optional. So it doesn't change the way the engine works, (laughs) but we're kind of taught that our ovulation is like that. We're kind of taught that, well, it's fine. It doesn't really matter. Okay. we'll We'll put you on the pill or whatever but we're not really taught like, what does it mean if you're a woman of reproductive age and you literally stop menstruating? And so even if you don't want a baby, like that could be one of the signs of like HA, hypothalamic amenorrhea. And in a case like that, if you are going without a period for six months or more, it can increase your lifetime risk of osteoporosis. So even if you don't want to have a baby (laughs) right now, you probably don't want osteoporosis in your twenties. And I have worked with clients who have had that issue because of their extended HA. So we should just, it's a basic, basic information that we should all have. Unfortunately, we don't, but the menstrual cycle does act like a vital sign and something really important that we can pay attention to. And it's actually shocking to me, the number of non-medical women that I meet either on a plane or friends of friends or what have you. And we'll be talking about hormones because they'll say, what do you do? Oh, I'm in hormones. And they'll go, oh yeah, my period, blah, blah, blah. And I'll say, well, is your period regular? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> I get, I think it comes every month. I think it just sort of shows up. I'm like, well, don't you track it? Like, no, I, no, I don't, you know. And and so that's just so shocking to me (laughs) who like you, like I know like pretty much everything there is to know about my period. And so what, for those listening who maybe fall into that camp of like, all right, I guess I should start tracking. Like what's, 
normal, there's common, and then there's normal. So like how long should the menstrual cycle be? How many days should you bleed? Are cramps okay? We get all these questions. Well, yeah. So I'm happy to take you through the cycle. And so I'll take you through the whole cycle. Cause like I said, usually when I say the cycle, it's like, oh, just a period. So again, the first day of your period is the first day of the flow. So often women might have a few days of spotting on the way there, but we're talking about the first day that you actually need to, I, I always say the first day you need to do something about it. And so what's normal for your period is that on average, it's lasting about three to seven days. So maybe four to five. Mm-hmm. And it typically would start moderate to heavy and then kind of gradually descend. So I often say the period should be like a sentence. It should have a beginning, a middle and an end, and then it should be over. And so, so that's something to keep in mind as well. There's a couple, like it's really common to have pain. Many women experience painful periods, but outside of childbirth, that's the only example I've managed to come up with where we think pain is a part of a normal process. We can't really say that it's optimal Mm -hmm. to experience that kind of pain because we know it's associated with inflammation and potentially more serious conditions, you know, like endometriosis or something like that. So that's something to be aware of, very common, but not optimal. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of flow, one of the things that's interesting is that most of us, we don't really, even if you have a close girlfriend, you're not talking to her about your period like that. So we all just think whatever we experience is normal. So if you have a lighter flow, you kind of think everyone does. (laughs) If you have a heavier flow, you think everyone does. So it is helpful to have a general idea of what's normal for flow. So typically a healthy flow would be somewhere between 25 and 80 milliliters. And then I'm not that great with converting it to the ounces, but let's say one to three or four ounces. And so what that means is that there is such a thing as too light. Like if you're Mm -hmm. barely filling a panty liner or something like that for a day or two, that's too light. And if you're filling a menstrual cup six times a day mm-hmm. <laughs> or changing your pad every hour and it's full it is helpful to know that there's something outside of, of normal. So I can kind of leave that there, but that's, that's a lot of information and we've only covered the period so far. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so moving right along. So in terms of your question around the cycle length, often always we're told that the cycle is supposed to be 28 days, like we're robots and it's always supposed to be the same. And so <laughs> it turns out that there's a range And so a healthy cycle typically falls somewhere between about 24 to 35 days with an average of about 29 days. And this is a a woman of reproductive age who's kind of in that kind of middle stage. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit different for women at the very beginning of their menstrual life. So within those first two to four years or so, and it can change a little bit towards the 10 years before your last period. But in the middle, we have an average of about 29 days. But what that means is that often, I'm sure you hear this a lot, you know, my period's so regular. And then you're like, well, how long are you like, or my cycles are so regular. How long? And it's like, oh yeah, sometimes they're like 32 days. <laughs> it's like, oh, actually that's okay. <laughs> so a little bit of variation is fine. And, and what we consider to be more of an issue is if the cycles are regularly longer than 35 days, or if there's more than about eight days fluctuation from cycle to cycle. So even that is really helpful because there's so many women that actually have cycles that fall into the normal range, but they might think mm-hmm. that there's something wrong. And so if I briefly take you through the cycle, cause I'm like still going, once the period is done, then we would enter into that preovulatory phase. So typically in a healthy cycle, we would expect to see a few days before we start to see cervical fluid. So in the fertility awareness world, we call those dry days. So those are simply days that you're not really seeing that creamy stuff or the clear stretchy stuff. And in a healthy cycle, you would expect to see anywhere from about two to seven days of cervical fluid. And so again, lotiony, clear stretchy, like raw egg whites. And you might notice that like a, you feel slippery when you're wiping, or you might notice there's a time in your cycle when you feel kind of wet, like you notice it as you're walking around. And so that leads up to ovulation. And once you ovulate healthy, typical cycle, then before ovulation, it's the estrogen that is causing those changes in cervical fluid. After ovulation, it's the progesterone and progesterone shuts down some of those effects of estrogen. So then we see the mucus stop. Typically we'd see dry days. And again, that second half of the cycle, healthy cycle, then your period would come 12 to 14 days after. So if your period is coming like seven days after ovulation, or you're having lots of spawning before, or you're having really significant PMS symptoms, then these are signs of hormonal issues. And like even just this basic, so I feel like for women who haven't heard this kind of laid out before, it's kind of like, wow, like that was a lot lot of information. You know, this is a lot more than I kind of thought. And then the second question is, well, it's not that complicated. Like, why couldn't we be taught this? Right. hundred percent, hundred percent. And going back to the cervical mucus part, which we'll get into when we talk about the fertility awareness method, but the amount of women who go, oh, I must have an infection. Yes. I have mucus that comes and goes every month. I must have a cyclical yeast infection and come to find out it's actually their natural, normal pre mucus. So can you just touch on that for a second? Like, why do we even get mucus there in the first place? 
Yeah. I mean, cervical fluid, uh, cervical mucus, I use those terms interchangeably, Mm -hmm. but I mean, it's really fascinating. And as fertility awareness educators, it's like, that's the thing you want everyone to know about their mucus. So, I mean, the role of cervical fluid is to actually keep the sperm alive for up to five days. So many of us have heard that sperm can live in your body, but we're kind of, it's like, ran a random terrorism because we kind of think it could happen at any time, but it turns out that really it happens during that fertile window. So you could think of cervical fluid as kind of like our complement in our bodies to a man's seminal fluid. It's kind of like a home away from home, <laughs> if you will. Mm-hmm. And so it's the perfect pH to maintain sperm. So outside of that fertile window, the vagina is actually pretty acidic. And so it's kind of like a sperm killing machine. Like it's, yeah. <laughs> so outside of this window, typically the sperm can't survive for very long. It's too acidic. There's nowhere for it to go, et cetera. But during this window, it's the perfect pH. It provides some degree of nourishment and it has these really incredible properties. So the cervical fluid that we create, you know, that we produce as we approach ovulation, it rapidly transports the sperm into the cervical crypts. And so the cervix is the opening of the uterus. That's where the baby comes out and that's where the sperm would have to go in. And so during this window, that's when the cervix is actually open. And so the cervical fluid draws the sperm into the cervical crypts where they literally can hang out for several days, that three to five days, <laughs> hotel, villa spermy. I'm a nerd, but here we go. I love it. And a couple other properties that are really interesting about cervical fluid. One of them is that it actually screens sperm of poor morphology and motility. And I think that's something really interesting, especially if you get into the kind of fertility rabbit hole and learn that even the healthiest man alive, at least half of his sperm, is not optimal in terms of motility and or morphology. Mm -hmm. And so within the cervical fluid, the sperm that can't swim very well, that don't have good motility kind of can't make it through. And the ones that are really poor morphology often get trapped. So (laughs) it's really interesting how that all works. And helpful. To your point, I mean, there's, because we're not taught that this is a normal thing. I mean, I can remember when I was a teenager, it's only upon reflection (laughs) that I kind of put two and two together, but There was a time, even before I started menstruating, that I started to notice this wet stuff. Mm -hmm. And I remember asking my mom about it. And she was like, I don't recall what she said it was, but she was kind of like, oh, I get that too. And she started buying me panty liners. (laughs) And that was kind of like the end of the conversation. But many of us have noticed this. And again, it's helpful to have that understanding of what it looks like. So healthy cervical fluid is either like a white or opaque color or like clear color. It does happen cyclically. So we would expect it for a period of time, not all the time. And then when you, if you just get that from this conversation, like if that's all you get from the conversation, then when you're not on a hormonal method, because you're not going to see this kind of cyclical stuff when you're on a hormonal method, then if you start paying attention to it, you'll start to notice. Typically you have this cervical fluid for several days and then it goes away. Mm -hmm. And so to kind of go on a little tangent, I often get the question about teenage girls where people say like, do you recommend fertility awareness? to teenage girls for birth control. (laughs) And then I say, I think condoms are a good idea for teenagers. (laughs) But in terms of body awareness, I mean, wouldn't you have wanted to know how to predict when your period was coming? Yeah, I would have. (laughs) Yeah. So when you understand mucus and the role it plays and how it's produced around ovulation, even just by mucus, when the mucus stops, you can start to count how many days until your period starts. And this is literally the way that you can start to predict when your period is coming. So for teenagers, I think this is fantastic information and a birth control conversation can happen much later. (laughs) Yeah, right. Absolutely. And I've even had the questions with the cervical fluid or cervical mucus where I've had women say to me, I feel like I make a lot, right? Like it's concerning to me how much I make, but generally, not always, but generally, this isn't something we talk about with our girlfriends. We're not like, there's no way to show each other per se. Like, well, how much do you make? You know, What's normal? Well, you should see my, uh, <laughs> my Slack messages from clients. But <laughs> oh, I bet. <laughs> so I see a lot of mucus. But yeah, I can see that because I mean, and it really depends because there's a lot of different factors that affect mucus production, as I'm sure you know. So it can mm-hmm. be from a hormonal issue if your estrogen is low and, and that's making you make less. Or if you have used birth control for a really long time and you come off and, but yes, for women at their like peak kind of fluid production. Yeah. So based on, you know, the research, it's like when we're in our twenties, yeah. you're going to be gushing with this stuff. And so if you, for some of us, it's like you go to the bathroom and you wipe and like your hand hits the back of the toilet. And then you, if you look at the toilet paper, there's like this white stuff running white, white stuff hanging off of it. Yeah. Stringy. Yeah. And unless someone tells you what that is, it can be kind of freaky because you have no idea. So I, right. I, I, don't, I know who you get asked, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. You, they're going to ask you, they're going to read your book and follow you. Right. <laughs> well, hopefully. Yes. 
is this normal? Yes, it's probably normal. Yes. (laughs) So in talking about this, what are the things that you see kind of screwing up the period? You know, it's a very controlled, it should be a very controlled system that moves through the phases as you're talking about estrogen, ovulation, progesterone, the period, wash, rinse, repeat. What do you see screwing it up? Yeah, (laughs) that's a great question. There's a lot of different things. I I think it depends on the person. So from the perspective of illness or not, Mm -hmm. some of us have a predisposition to insulin resistance and glucose intolerance. And so that can make us more susceptible to something like PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, where it's characterized by these long irregular cycles, hyperandrogenism. So hirsutism hair in places you don't want the hair, (laughs) very coarse hair, acne, and cysts on the ovaries in some cases. And so that's one of the things that is more of like a personal predisposition where it's really unfortunate because you have two women who are basically eating in a similar fashion, mm-hmm. but one of them that really tanks her, her cycle. And so again, that's part of that picture of how it looks in the cycle would be cycles that tend to be longer than 35 days and, or cycles that are really kind of irregular, meaning more than that eight days of fluctuation. So these are women often, not always, but who are having cycles that are like 40 something days and really fluctuating. And so, I mean, the good news is that there's at least a dietary component to that. So there's a combination of things that you can do. And unfortunately, we're not really taught that there's anything you can do. Yeah. So plenty of women who have this issue, like we all think they're supposed to be 28 days. So if your cycle is like 45 days all the time or 50 days, you kind of know something's wrong. But unfortunately, we go to the doctor and the, what they tell us is like, go on the pill. And then if you want to get pregnant in the future, come back and we'll give you a different set of drugs. Right. <laughs> but what we often miss in that conversation is that it is actually possible to get under control. It might take a bit of time, effort, some support, but it is a possible. So another scenario would be, I think I mentioned HA already. So let's just go there again. But hypothalamic amenorrhea typically is associated with under eating, over exercise and stress. And so in the case where it's kind of more pronounced, that's when you lose your period for a period of time and you're just not menstruating. But I think that there's degrees of this. Yeah. So one of the things that I talk about a lot with my clients and um, even with my practitioners is the role of getting enough to eat. (laughs) It's like such a basic thing, but we really underestimate that. So one of the things that I really see kind of screwing up the cycle to varying degrees is women not getting enough overall macros. Mm. So not getting enough protein Mm. and then therefore not getting necessarily enough fat and and carbohydrates. But the overall picture means that there's not enough food coming into the body to produce sufficient hormones. And so in the case of HA, that's very pronounced. Like that's a case where at the point that your body is basically starving and ovulation has stopped so that we can conserve that energy and you're not ovulating, there's no period, there's no cervical fluid. And that's one of the big differences, I think, between HA and and PCOS, for example, because with PCOS, that's not the issue. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The issue is not that you're not getting enough food. And often it's presenting with lots of like plenty of patches of cervical fluid. So often these women have quite a bit, maybe not a lot, but they're seeing cervical fluid, whereas HA, it's just dry. Mm -hmm. And because there's no hormonal stuff going on. And then in between, we can see other stuff. So you can see delayed ovulation, kind of some disruption, strange mucus patterns. And often low progesterone, like shorter luteal phase, spotting before your period. And this is exacerbated by exercise. So I'm sure you and I could talk about this topic all day long, but I often have conversations with clients like an adult human female needs to eat this much protein in a day. And if you are active on top of that, then we need more. And it is, I think the way that I usually understand it and and try to describe it is that think of your stereotypical guy. So we're going to go into gender stereotypes right now. But your stereotypical guy, if he's working out, what is he trying to do, right? He's trying to bulk up. And so your average stereotypical dude, when he works out, he's going to eat more. (laughs) He's going to eat more meals. He's going to add more protein, whatever. But no one has to tell him that because his goal is to bulk up, right? right? So that's kind of part of that whole thing. For women, stereotypically, obviously, that's typically not what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. I have not yet met a woman who's trying to bulk up. Not often, no. (laughs) If you meet one, let me know, but I have not met one yet. And so typically we're trying to lean up, we're trying to lose some weight, whatever. And so adding an extra meal is kind of the last thing that's on our mind. And if we think back to like the eighties and nineties, the calories in calories out stuff, it really trained us to think that in order to lose weight, we need to eat less. But what happens with the cycle is that it really throws it off. So that's something that is really important to pay attention to, because if you don't have the basic foundation of sufficient caloric intake to match your activity level, then it's basically impossible to have optimal hormone health. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the other kind of peripheral, like sleep is very important, obviously. And then other conditions to watch for. 
if you have issues with gut health, if you have issues with hormone metabolism, which you talk about all the time, these types of things can really have a negative effect on the cycle if you have a thyroid issue. So any type of health issue that is affecting your hormones obviously can then play out in your menstrual cycle. And this is why we have that idea of the menstrual cycle as the vital sign. And what about chemicals? What about like endocrine disruptors, which I know could be a whole topic unto itself, but Those too. <laughs> speaking of like cycle length or period heaviness or fibroids, I've in just even in my social media comments, I've had plenty of women write, you know what? I switched to a hundred percent organic tampon or pad and all my cramps went away. And then women are like, me too, me too, me too, me too. And I thought, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. So I didn't mention that rattle it off on my list, but it's definitely one of those topics that comes up a lot because I mean, we're just bombarded with it. I mean, again, mm-hmm. think about stereotypically the products that are made for women. I often say that unless you're specifically looking for a product that is natural or chemical free, all of the stuff is bombarding us with all of the angles. So anything that's scented, if you smell like strawberries today or mangoes, I mean, that's nice, right? Like I like mangoes, but ultimately all of those kinds of things throw it off. And so often there's that conversation of xenoestrogens or estrogen mimicking chemicals. And it's just absolutely crazy. And this can be very mm-hmm. overwhelming for people because then it's like, okay, well, let's talk about the things that we we could change. Okay. So we could change our beauty products. We could switch to non-scented and or scented via essential oils or something that's more natural. We can look at cleaning products in the house. So we can look at mm-hmm. all of the things you use to clean everything with a scent. Yep. That's a tall order, fabric softener, laundry detergent. And maybe that would be the place to start because you sleep on your sheets all night. So if you're breathing in all the stuff all the time, that's not good. And then we could talk about all the, like when you go into someone's house, like for me, we don't have scents in the house anymore. So if I go into someone's house, they have like those plugins. Right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's like, whoa, it hit you like a truck, all of the perfumes and whatever. And I'm not dead, right? Like <laughs> there's yeah. still, there's the pesticides and the foods, there's, and that's like, how far do you want to take it? Like if you get a new carpet in your house, it's off gas. Like if you buy a mattress, like, so it, you can drive yourself nuts. So typically the approach that I take, at least to start with, and then the stuff in the water, mm-hmm. right? Like filtered, mm-hmm. not filtered water. Like what do you cook your stuff with? Are you using non Like it could just go on. Right. So the goal typically that I encourage my clients to think of in the back of their mind is not to be perfectly pristine clean. Because even if you were to get everything out of your house and get the cleanest situation going that you can, you still have to walk outside and breathe air. And then there's the pollution. So really from my perspective, what we're looking for is reducing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like you said, so the number one, because, you know, estrogenic compound, if you want to call it that, I always say is the birth control pill, the normal. Because <laughs> I always say like, at least if I'm like spraying myself with perfume, it wasn't designed to shut down ovulation. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's important to recognize like, so that we're not contradicting ourselves here. An endocrine disruptor is something that is disrupting our hormonal profile. So not to throw it under the bus, but I, I just did. but it's true because we should mention that a product that was designed to shut down ovulation is going (laughs) to disrupt the hormones. And then obviously menstrual products, because anything that you put inside your vagina or around your vagina, you should be comfortable eating it basically (laughs) like in in a way, right? Because, Mm -hmm. and anything you put on your skin and all those kinds of things. And you're absolutely right. You know, I have worked with a number of women who they do switch over to different kinds of tampons. They switch out some of their products. They clean up, take control, take charge of their cleaning products and stuff like that. And notice a big difference, a shift, less PMS, more even moods and often um, less painful periods. So I'll just wrap up (laughs) this point because I can talk about all day, but I'll just say that because it's very overwhelming to think about all of this stuff, what I typically say is, okay, don't throw out of your stuff. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Take a big breath. Okay. The next time you need to replace your laundry detergent, It doesn't have to be a fancy, expensive eco brand. It could be the same brand that's non-scented. Yeah. And then you can gradually look for the beauty products and the care products. And these days there's way more options than there was. And there's cleaning products that are kind of quote natural that don't, that actually work. Because I remember years ago when I was trying to make the switch, I kept buying all these products and they didn't even work. Right. Oh yeah. And that's not going to work. I had a really interesting experience with like laundry detergent. I was buying, I bought this like real gentle laundry detergent and it did not wash the clothes and it was a disaster. And so, no, I'm just going with the non-scented. And expensive. And expensive mm-hmm. and it didn't work. So, but all, oh yeah. That, I mean, I could go on for the like a day on that, but I think that's probably the best way to do it and then do it in stages. So mm-hmm. for me, it was like, yes, eventually I got rid of those non-stick pans and replaced it with cast iron. It wasn't the first thing I did. Eventually I bought a more expensive water filter, but it wasn't the first thing I did. So I did it in stages. And same here. And people ask me this all the time that I'm like, it took me years, decades to get where I'm at. So 
I had bought a new mattress a couple years ago and people were like, oh my gosh, that's so expensive. And I was like, you don't understand. <laughs> I've had my mattress for decades. Like I'm at the point where the mattress is the next step. I didn't swap, just like you said, I didn't swap everything at once. I didn't buy the expensive water filter and the mattress and all the sort of clean eco brands at the same time. It was, I did exactly what you did. I ran out of deodorant, switched. I ran out of face lotion, switched. I ran out of shampoo, switched. Like I just sort of worked through it in the house. And then as I learned more, got rid of the scented things like candles, like all my pretty candles that were around the house are no more. Yes. I used to really like... Unless there are, there are some good companies out there for sure that are truly natural candles. Naven have like wood wicks to, so you're not burning the synthetic wick. They go all in, but still the number, just like you said, the number of people who have plugins and candles and all these things like that, just scented stuff. It's their normal. But once you cut it out of your life or like, you really recognize it. You really recognize it. Have you noticed, because I mean, I think it's so interesting when you're using all that stuff, like if you use fabric softener, so now I'm throwing fabric softener under the bus, but it's really full of chemicals. Totally. Look it up. But if you use fabric softener, it's like you don't notice because every time you wash your clothes, you use fabric softener again. So I have two littles, one is six and one is nine. And I remember when they were babies, we got clothes from friends and it's the most wonderful thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> often they're like brand new and you're just like, wow. And I remember washing this one kind of set of clothes like seven times because I couldn't get out the smell of the fabric softener. So I think we, I don't know, when you remove the scents, you become so much more sensitive. Like I swear I can smell someone wearing cologne like six blocks down the road now. It's the truth. It's the truth. I was a friend, I was at a friend of mine in February who likes scented everything and we're staying at his house using his towels and you could smell it. And I was like, what is that smell? And he was like, what smell? You know, he was so immune to it because it's on, it permeates on everything that he washes with. But to me, I was like, wow, I, this mountain pine is really strong. So I understand. And I know people who are listening are going to be like, yeah, I recognize that. Or they're going to be listening, looking around their house at their really beautiful glass candles that they have everywhere for decoration going, hmm, synthetic fragrance, endocrine disruptor. And that plug in yep. and realize, oh, wait, I didn't even smell it. Yeah. The tree and the, that's hanging off the rear view of your car. Yeah. The worst is when you get into an Uber or a Lyft and they're just covered in plugins and trees and stuff because of all the different people getting in and out. I'm like, oh, and you sit in that all day. Good gracious. Oh my gosh. All right. So now we have established the baseline of our period. We know roughly what's considered normal. How do we use, what is the fertility awareness method? How do we use the fertility awareness method to get or to not get pregnant? Now that we understand our cycle better. Excellent. Well, so the fertility awareness method is basically a way to track and understand and pay attention to your, a few specific signs of fertility in the menstrual cycle so that you can really understand when in your cycle you're fertile, when you're not. So the most common signs that we pay attention to are cervical fluid, basal body temperature, and cervical position, which is optional. So I teach the symptothermal method, which is basically a combination of the symptoms like the cervical fluid and the cervical position and the basal body temperature. And I think it's helpful to know that there are a variety of different fertility awareness-based methods. So there's kind of like this umbrella of different ways to track because you're indirectly tracking your hormone profile because the mucus is a response of the hormones and et cetera. So some methods use mucus only, some methods use temperature only, some methods use a combination, and some methods incorporate hormone testing like LH strips or other things. So I think that's just a helpful overview because often you hear fertility awareness method and think it's one thing, but there's actually a lot of things under that umbrella. So basically like from just the, like the high level viewpoint, I took you through the cycle. So hopefully you got the sense that, okay, so when I'm approaching ovulation, I'm going to see this mucusy stuff. And that's kind of the central aspect of understanding what's going on. So pregnancy is not possible on every single day of your cycle. And this is science. I'm biology. So that's good news <laughs> because there's actually research that has been done. There many of these methods, these fertility awareness-based methods are evidence-based. And so we actually have solid research on what's happening in different phases of the cycle and when pregnancy can actually happen. So from the practical perspective, then if we start with mucus, in order to start tracking this, if you're really interested. So, I mean, the first step obviously would be to read up on it. There's lots of great books and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the most basic level, you just start paying attention to your cervical fluid and there's different ways to do it. So I teach my clients to the wiping method. So basically when you go to the bathroom, you're in a wipe before and after, and you're going to pay attention to what you see. And during those days of fertility, you're going to see the cervical fluid 
And then outside of that window, you're typically not going to see that fertile cervical fluid. And other women check maybe internally. So there's, again, there's different ways to check it. But ultimately, once you start to do that from cycle to cycle, you start to see this pattern where at some times you're seeing it and other times you're not. And on a most basic level, those are your fertile days. So when you're seeing cervical fluid as you approach ovulation, those are the days where if you have sex on those days, (laughs) the sperm can survive for up to five days. Unprotected sex. And get you pregnant. Unprotected sex. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so for example, if you have cervical fluid, so like clear, stretchy and or lotiony, it's all fertile. So one of the things I teach my client is like within the fertility awareness world, I do not talk about more or less fertile mucus because you can't be more or less pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not. So you're either fertile <laughs> or you're not. <laughs> I love it. And so if you see whatever type of cervical fluid that you're seeing, it means that when you, a couple things, the first thing is it means that when you have sex, the sperm can survive in there, hanging out, hotel, dillospermy. And the second thing is that one of the thing, one of the key pieces of cervical fluid is that when it's present, it's also telling us that the cervix is open. So if I take a moment to just share about the cervix, <laughs> so I find this stuff fascinating. And I remember when I first started learning, the cervix was really interesting to me, although it's typically one of the most confusing parts for my clients. But if you wanted to, so again, it's optional. So not to do it if you don't want to, if you're not comfortable, there's plenty of valid reasons not to be comfortable touching your cervix and checking it, finding it. So only if you're comfortable, but if you're comfortable, you can actually wash your hands, insert your finger into your vagina, check your cervix once a day. And you do that throughout your cycle. And what you would find if you did that is around ovulation, the cervix changes. Mm -hmm. It tends to be in a higher position, tends to be a bit softer, and you might feel a bit of an opening. If you've never had a baby before, if you put your lips together and just touch your lips, you might feel a bit of an indent. And that's kind of what you would feel when the cervix is, quote, open. And outside of that window, if you touch the end of your nose, that's kind of what you would feel when the cervix is closed. So if you check it, it's very interesting. And so you can actually feel it. Oh, it feels kind of open. Oh, feels back to being closed. And so when you have those days of cervical fluid, it's actually telling you that the cervix is open. So me with my analogies, I often use the analogy of like a nightclub with a bouncer. And so the bouncer is either on duty or out to lunch. (laughs) And the cervical fluid helps us to understand whether or not the bouncer is there. So that's one of the reasons why we don't look at mucus as more or less fertile because the cervix is either open or closed. And so if it's open, we're seeing the cervical fluid and you have sex. So let's say it's Monday, you see the cervical fluid, you have sex, unprotected, and the sperm hang out in there. <laughs> They're high-fiving each other and having tea. And <laughs> and then by... Fr- or drinks, we're at a club. Or drinks, yep. Either way, all's good. And then on Friday, let's say you ovulate. So you don't actually ovulate on Monday, but you had the sex on Monday and now it's Friday and you actually ovulate on Friday. So you can get pregnant on Friday because of the sex you had on Monday because the sperm is still hanging out, high-fiving each other and having drinks. <laughs> And so this is why it's really important to understand how your cycle works. Because often we're told for women who are trying to conceive, maybe more so that we have to have sex on ovulation day. So it's so interesting if you think about it, like when you're not trying to get pregnant, you're told that you can get pregnant every single day of the cycle. And then when you are trying to get pregnant, they tell you to have sex on ovulation day. Right. (laughs) This is like, just completely, there's a disconnect here. So the truth falls somewhere in the middle and there's research to show. So there's a new, a study in the New England Journal of Medicine, and they had all these participants who were having unprotected sex. They were trying to get pregnant and they identified when the pregnancies occurred based on the day of the cycle that they had sex on. And so in that study, there was a six day period where pregnancy happened. So it was ovulation day plus the five days before ovulation. And in that study, they even broke down the percentage chance. So yes, the percentage chance of pregnancy was a bit higher the day before ovulation, Mm -hmm. but there was still a chance on the five days before. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so it's really interesting. So for mucus, That's kind of the rundown on that. And then we kind of did the rundown on the cervical position. And so from the practical level, you would just start to pay attention to it, see what you see. That's really step one. For the temperature part of it, pretty straightforward. We take the temperature first thing in the morning before you get out of bed. That's kind of like the typical way to do it. You track it in your favorite app or I'm old school. So I have a paper charting book that I made and et cetera. But ultimately what's interesting is that After ovulation, you make that progesterone and progesterone has a thermogenic effect on the body. So the temperature doesn't actually give you any predictive information. So you can't use it to help you avoid pregnancy in that sense, because by the time it's gone up, it's too late. Too late, yep. (laughs) But it's a good retrospective measure to help you identify when you ovulated and you can correlate that with your cervical fluid observations. And so, I mean, again, if you are really into data, if this is a topic that's really interesting to you, it is really fascinating to watch it play out Mm -hmm. in real time, cycle after cycle to see 
oh, wow, like I see my cervical fluid. Oh, interesting. It's starting to go away. Oh, my temperature's up. And to see that kind of go and to see that you can rely on it. And so if we were to break this, the menstrual cycle into just two broad halves, the pre-ovulatory phase and the post-ovulatory. So the pre-ovulatory phase is the only part of the cycle where pregnancy is possible. Once you ovulate, if you didn't have unprotected sex and there's no sperm involved, then the egg will disintegrate within 12 to 24 hours and then it's gone. So the second half of the cycle, once you've confirmed ovulation, now, because I'm teaching symptom thermal, I'm encouraging my clients to confirm using what's called the cross-check method. So they're confirming the temperature and the, the cervical fluid and there's rules and there's mm-hmm. that kind of thing, a little bit of a buffer period added on for to ensure that it matches what the evidence tells us. But after that point is reached, <laughs> when we have confirmed ovulation, pregnancy is not possible for the rest of the cycle. So there's actually a part of the cycle where pregnancy is impossible. I know that's not what you were told in junior high. <laughs> it might take you a couple of hours to <laughs> process this. <laughs> but that means, and I'm going to say it, clarify, because I get this question from clients like in my class. <laughs> They're already bought in and it's, you mean like unprotected withdrawal, right? <laughs> but I mean, so you could literally have unprotected sex where your partner ejaculates inside of your body. And because the egg is gone, mm-hmm. the cervix is closed and you don't have that cervical fluid that's flowing. What you have instead at that phase of the cycle is a mucus plug that actually blocks the sperm and they can look at the center of the microscope, like the sperm can't penetrate it. So literally there's a point in your cycle where pregnancy is not possible. And so with fertility awareness, then you can learn it just for information. So you can learn it. You can track your cycle just to get that additional understanding of your body. Many of my clients, most of my clients, if not all of them are typically working towards improving their health, maybe improving some of those cycle parameters. But if you've had an issue with hormonal contraceptives or you're looking for a non-hormonal method for whatever reason, or you're planning to try to have a baby in the next year or so, and you're wanting to come off hormones and just like let your body do its thing, you can actually use fertility words to avoid pregnancy successfully. And when used correctly, and I have to stress correctly, the efficacy is up to 99.4%. So yeah, I mean, the typical use definitely varies because as I mentioned, there's a lot of different methods. So the methods that consistently have the highest efficacy rate would be the symptothermal method with an additional last infertile calculation added in. So there's there's lots of, <laughs> I certainly look into a little bit more, but even to think about what I just said, like there's a non-hormonal method, like no, it doesn't change your cycle. It's not hormonal. It doesn't, it does require <laughs> some effort and things like that. But the efficacy when used correctly rivals hormonal birth control. So not all of us are even aware that that's an option. So that's a really great thing to know. And then of course, when you're trying to conceive, it's really helpful to have the cycle demystified and to really understand when in the cycle is optimal for conception and even what a normal cycle looks like. So for example, if you were planning to conceive, trying to start next year, for example, and you did come off birth control and it does take a little bit of time for the cycles to fully normalize, to have this information, to be able to give your body that opportunity and to know what stuff means, like when you're seeing this and that and different changes. I mean, it's just a completely, it's like a completely different life. (laughs) Oh my God, it's so empowering. I mean, it's just so empowering. And one of the things I really want to highlight, because this is another thing I had put in my questions and my stories, was about how long do you think the egg lives? And just like you could get pregnant every day at your cycle, people thought a lot of people, men and women, thought that the egg just sort of lived forever. Like it just <laughs> routinely just sort of bouncing around down there and 12 to 24 hours. I've even read as low as six hours, to six to 24, depending on your health and your age and the quality of your cells. And so just knowing even that sometimes once the egg releases, it doesn't, it's not actively searching out sperm. It's not driving around with a GPS trying to find a sperm, (laughs) you know, after about six to 24 hours, it's done. And so like, that was mind blowing for a lot of people of that's it. That's a, that's as long as it lives. I'm like, ah, that's it. And then the body takes care, gets rid of it. Mm -hmm. If if it doesn't meet a sperm and you're not pregnant. Well, and if you think about it from that, in those terms, if we didn't really have cervical fluid, you just had to have sex at that six hour to 12 hour to 24 hour window, it'd be a lot harder to conceive. So Mm -hmm. that even takes us back to like, what is the role of cervical fluid? So ideally, if you think about what this means, if we put it all together, if you're trying to get pregnant, then as I had mentioned, you're making the cervical fluid typically five-ish or more days before ovulation. And so the way that it seems to have been designed (laughs) is that the sperm would actually be there already. Yeah. So if you think about going to a party, we're waiting for the guest to honor. Everyone's just hanging out, chilling out, having drinks, and we're all there already. So I always say like, if you picture what's going on in this, in the uterus, you had the sex, the sperm went into the cervix, 
half of them are in the wrong tube, half of them are in the right tube because we're not sure which side is going to ovulate this month. And then when ovulation happens, the sperm are literally already in the fallopian tube and the sperm and the egg meet each other inside the fallopian tube. And again, this is basic information. And when I talk about it, it's like, well, that makes a lot of sense, obviously. Yeah. (laughs) But we're not really taught it. I I don't remember being taught a lot about my eyes and my ears and stuff in (laughs) biology class. Yeah. Interesting, but far less useful than this. This would have been really helpful to know, even as young as middle school and high school and and beyond. It's almost like we need a refresher. I keep saying this. We need a refresher every decade. Like, <laughs> like there's what to expect when you're expecting. We like, we need like what to expect in your 20s, what to expect in your 30s, what to expect in your 40s, just to give us a little, little insight. I do want to just compare before we start to wrap up, like how is this different from the hormonal birth control? If somebody's on the birth control pill and they're listening to this going, I don't ever get mucus and I don't think I ovulate. Uh, you don't and you don't. Can you explain why? <laughs> Sure. So with hormonal birth control, the biggest difference is that you don't have a cycle. So Mm -hmm. this takes us into a lot of the myths that we're taught. So there's lots of myths about contraception, like it regulates the cycle and that kind of thing. And and many women still think when they're on the pill that they're having a, a cycle because they get what they call a period. Right. So a true menstrual period occurs after ovulation. So that's what I would call a true menstrual flow. So the primary mode of action for the pill. And so if we look at all the contraceptive, like the hormonal contraceptive methods under the umbrella, they don't all work in exactly the same way, but they do have three main modes of action. And so the first is that they suppress ovulation. So again, the pill, that's its primary mode of action with, for example, the hormonal IUD that might not be its primary, but it can happen in a percentage of the cases, but either way. So primary mode of action, (laughs) suppress ovulation. Very effective, very helpful if you're trying to avoid pregnancy because if there's no egg, there's no baby. Totally. (laughs) And so that's one of the reasons why it's so effective. But with that said, we're often told things like, oh, being on the pill is like when you're pregnant or it's kind of like a natural state of the body, right? Because it's like your body thinks it's pregnant. So you're not going to... But ironically, if we were to look at the natural hormone profile of a woman who's on birth control, it'd be more close to a woman in menopause because what's menopause? You've got like your ovaries aren't really active. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not a lot going on. That's kind of the same And then the secondary mode of action is a thinning of the uterine lining and or just kind of, so the uterine lining is not receptive to a fertilized egg and often quite thin. And that is another important mode of action. And the third would be to prevent the production of that fertile quality cervical fluid. So it really does maintain that mucus plug. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) the main difference would be that you're not having an actual cycle. And just humor me for a moment, because I think this story is really interesting. So when I was researching for the book, I was looking, I bought this book called, what is it called? But it was about the whole process of bringing the first pill to light. So oh, yeah. the very first pill was Inovid. It came out in 1960. And shortly before it was officially released, they did what I'm referring to as a beta trial. <laughs> and so they had, so basically at this time, just picture if you can, in the late fifties, there had never been a birth control pill in the market. So there was no situation where women didn't menstruate unless they were too young or unless they were in menopause or pregnant or breastfeeding or sick. And that's it. And so they had these women and ironically, some of the women who were part of this trial seemed to be, they were trying to conceive. And I think the idea behind it was if we stop the cycle and then start it, maybe there'll be a boost of fertility. So there was some twisted logic to this, but what happened was they put these women on the pill and they didn't have the same type of organization of the formulation as they do now. So there was no break. So the women went on this pill and then they just stopped getting their periods and half of them thought they were pregnant. And when the doctor tried to explain to them that they weren't, they got really upset. And so that's where we get this whole 28 day withdrawal bleed situation. So literally (laughs) they put in the withdrawal bleed. So the sugar pill series in this whole formulation specifically so that the women wouldn't be upset. So now (laughs) 60 years later, now you have articles saying, oh, there was never a medical reason to bring in the pill or to have period, like to have the bleeds and stuff. And that's a whole other conversation because there wasn't a medical reason to institute a withdrawal bleed. And yes, they could have put it at 28 days. They could have put it at 36 days. And that's evident because now we have 84 day formulations. It's all very random, yeah. but they seem to generalize that to mean like women don't need periods. Like those two things are not the same. Saying that there's no medical reason for a withdrawal bleed is not the same as saying there's no medical reason for having a period, but they've been conflated. But I think that's an interesting background because that actually illustrates that the withdrawal bleed is not a period. Right. So you're giving synthetic hormones for a period of time. And then when you withdraw them, the body responds with a bleed. Mm-hmm. And then if you were to continue to not be on them, eventually your normal cycles would resume. Which is 
argued a lot in social media, but now that everybody's listening to this and understands physiology and that you have to ovulate and then the hormones do its thing, the uterus does its thing. And then if you're not pregnant, you actually do have a menstrual period, which is different, like you said, than a withdrawal bleed where your ovulation's been suppressed, everything's been suppressed, but you stop the pill and you just sort of, sh- you shut off what's there. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that we could talk about the pill for another hour. Oh my gosh, no kidding. No, but we won't, <laughs> but it's helpful just to keep that in mind because then the other interesting piece of information about the first pill coming to market and all of that is that it was the first drug put on the market to give to healthy people to stop the function of a normal mm. bodily function. Like it wasn't a pill to take for a sick person to make them better. It was a pill for a healthy person to stop a natural body function. And so that's something to think about as well, because of course the pill is used for a lot of medical reasons. And that's controversial because many women find relief of certain symptoms Mm -hmm. using the pill. And so that's its own conversation. But with that said, I think in the spirit of informed consent, it is helpful to realize that the pill doesn't treat stuff. It can Mm -hmm. reduce symptoms, but it was never designed to be a treatment for an illness. It literally was designed to suppress a natural function in the body. And by doing that, yes, you can get symptom relief. And I think it doesn't mean that there's no benefit or usefulness in certain situations, but we should understand what it's doing right. and be able to have an open conversation about that. Right. And I to add on to that, yeah, when I, I get asked a lot, just like you, you know, what are your thoughts on the birth control pill? And a lot of times the informed consent, as you said, the spirit of informed consent, I wish was a lot more robust <laughs> given the number of patients that I had who were on the pill and just nobody told them. They, they were like, I had no idea these were side effects. This could be side effect. Carrie, I'm having all of these symptoms. I read it could be my birth control pill. Do you think it could be? And just that was never discussed with them. And it's really unfortunate in the, I love that. In the spirit of informed consent, I do wish that was a lot more in the forefront. If you're having gut issues, changes, mood changes, skin changes, hair changes, any kind of change, weight changes. Depression, painful sex, low libido. Anything. All right, right. Yeah, it definitely can be the birth control pill. Yeast infections that just came out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All the things. So if you're listening to this right now on the birth control pill and you're like, wait a minute, that's me. Ever since I've been on the pill, I've been having all these crazy symptoms. It could definitely be related. (laughs) And if you've been on the pill for five years or 10 years and you never really had symptoms and all of a sudden now you're having panic attacks, of course, you're not going to think it's related, but yeah. someone should tell you that it could be because some of the effects don't, like everyone responds differently. Yeah, This is why it's complicated. You know, some, I know friends who went on the pill and like within a week, they're like happy one day, crying the next minute. Like, and so some people literally try it and they can't use it, but other people mm-hmm. try it and they're actually pretty fine. At least they think so. But then years later, so I'm with you. I think that it, like in my perfect world, <laughs> I mean, we would just have it like the doctor would just have a conversation and potentially open out the insert and just say, you know what? There's certain effects that are more common than others, but I just want to go through with you some of these things, because if you, I just want you to know if you experience some of these things, I want you to come back to me. We can have a conversation about, even if they're like, we could try a different pill or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Because (laughs) that's a big problem. I'll give an egregious example (laughs) to make my point. Uh Oh, I love it. Sometimes it's good to do that way. Right. Sometimes it's not, but I've interviewed a lot of uh, women over the years sharing their own genuine experiences. And one example that comes to mind is this woman who was using an IUD. Now, having a pregnancy with an IUD is very, very rare because it is one of the most effective methods, the copper IUD and or the hormonal IUD, one of the most effective methods. Mm -hmm. However, if you do have a pregnancy, if you are in that tiny percentage of of people who get that (laughs) side effect, if you want to call it that, it's more likely to be ectopic. Mm. And so what happened in her case is that she had this like intense pain and she ends up in the emergency ward and she literally couldn't process it in her mind when they told her that she was pregnant (laughs) because that wasn't a possibility. I have an IUD. Yeah, nobody told me. Yeah, like (laughs) nobody told me. Yeah. And just as the basic, it's kind of like, well, someone should tell women, you know, if you're using the pill and you start to have migraines with aura, Mm -hmm. that's associated with a higher risk of Mm -hmm. stroke, blood clot. Mm -hmm. So like someone should tell you, if you ever start to experience that, come back to me and let's talk about it, et cetera. If you ever experience abdominal pain, very rare, Mm -hmm. come back to me and talk about it. That's it. That's all I want. Yeah. I just want like that little piece of information to be said out loud 
to a woman in a doctor's office when she goes on contraceptives. I would agree. I say it all the time as well. I hear, hear. I support you on that. <laughs> and it doesn't mean we're not dissuading, like, because, you know, the, the, all the, oh, yeah. Oh, if you tell them all that stuff, you're dissuading them and da-da. Yeah. No, I'm not. Like, <laughs> it's just like any other medication. If you were prescribed an antibiotic and the side effect could be diarrhea, I'd kind of like to know that, right? Like, if you're, yeah. it's the same thing. If you're given the birth control pill or even you decide on the IUD, like, you have to know the side effects no matter what. Just like your pharmacy kind of points out or staples to the front of your little pharmacy bag the the insert and all the things you need to know, it, you should read it. You should scan through it so you're an aware consumer. I agree. Yep. <laughs> well, I know we could talk for hours, obviously. So given <laughs> that this is the Root Cause Medicine podcast, and we've been talking all things menstrual and all things for fertility awareness, give me, give the listeners two or three kind of practical, tactical things that you want everybody to walk away knowing. Like if we boil it all down to these two or three things, What are the most important things you want people to remember? Ooh, that's good. Mm. Well, so you're not fertile every day of your cycle. (laughs) Take that and run with it. Yes. (laughs) You're really not though. And I don't, you don't take my word for it. Like you can fact check me because this is a real thing. Okay. (laughs) That's the first thing. And I guess the second thing would be that it is possible to prevent pregnancy without hormones. It's certainly a different approach and it does take a bit of learning. I think a good analogy is like learning to drive stick. Like you could read about that, but you're going to have to get in the car mm-hmm. and it's going to take a minute. <laughs> mm-hmm. But once you get it, it's really easy and you can do it in your sleep, but you can. And I think that's a message that many women are not told, especially I alluded to it before, but especially the younger generation, because when I was younger, they, I grew up in like the, the HIV AIDS kind of era mm-hmm. where <laughs> it was like my sex education in a nutshell was like, if you have sex, <laughs> you're going to get AIDS and die and be pregnant too, (laughs) right? Like he was like, yeah. And then literally, and I say that sometimes and it might sound crazy to some people, but I get a lot of feedback. Like I heard you say that and that's exactly what my education was too. (laughs) That was mine. Yeah. I, we grew up, I think in the same. So yeah. So my point though, is that we were taught about condoms like over and over and over again. And I remember learning that they were up to 98% effective, which is what the kind of correct use statistic still is. But I find the younger generation is told a different story. And so I talk to a lot of younger women who are told if you're not on contraceptives, it's just a matter of time until you conceive. It's not enough to use a non-hormonal method. You need a hormonal method too. And so I would just say it is actually possible to avoid pregnancy without hormones. You just have to look into it. But I just want people to know that that's, it doesn't mean you have to do that, but <laughs> but I just want you to know this is an option. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I guess the third thing, what's the third thing? I don't know. I feel like those two are pretty good. (laughs) Those are Um, fantastic. Yeah. And I actually, I love how you said it's like learning to drive stick until you get in the car. So for the people listening who've never tracked, never paid attention to mucus, like they don't know anything about their basal body temperature or this, that you have to get in the car. It's time, just like you said, it's time to start tracking. It's time to start looking. It's time to start piecing it together and following the cycle. And as you've said through the whole podcast interview, like you're going to learn a lot. You will. Yeah. And you don't have to like jump in and like do the whole thing. Like you don't have to mm-hmm. go all the way down the deep end and the rabbit hole with me. Mm-hmm. You don't have to touch your cervix today. Like it's okay. <laughs> you can simply download an app and start tracking your periods. Cause you, at the beginning of the call, you had mentioned that a lot of women are like, I don't even know where my periods go. So literally the, for many women, the first step is just to just put your period in an app. <laughs> yeah. That's the first step. And then when you see all the other buttons, like what's this and that, then you'll start to jump into that conversation of, oh, what's all, what's all this other stuff? <laughs> And then you know, and then be in power. Oh, I know what the third thing is. Read your book. Oh yeah, that too. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so if you like the conversation today, I mean, a lot of the stuff that we talked about is covered in depth. And I have a whole chapter on cervical fluid. I had a lot of great feedback from women and practitioners. Even <laughs> they're just like, "Wow, this is like a lot of information about cervical fluid." I had no idea. And so yeah, lots of information about the pill. If you want to be angry first, to go to chapter seven, read about the pill. <laughs> put a lot of interesting data in there. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's in the spirit of informed consent. I have gotten some flack for that. Like, oh, she's talking about all this stuff about the pill, but like everything I is in there is cited. So don't be mad at me. Be bad at the researchers. Like why, why are you taking it on me? Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Her book again for everybody is the fifth vital sign. But Lisa, how do people find you? Other than your book, where do they find you? Well, so if you like podcasts, I have a podcast called Fertility Friday. And so if you type in Fertility Friday in your favorite podcast player, you'll find it. The book, The Fifth Vital Sign is available on Amazon. You can get the first chapter for free at thefifthvitalsignbook.com. And I'm on Instagram at Fertility Friday. So lots of fun posts happening over there. (laughs) Most definitely. She's active on Instagram too. So good one to learn from. You're always uh, going through your Instagram actually this morning, last night. 
in preparation for this, just to make sure I didn't miss anything. And you are, you have a wealth of information for everyone listening to learn from. Thanks. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, again, thank you so, so much. Like I said, at the very beginning, you're really the first person we've had on the Root Cause Medicine podcast to talk about periods in depth and fertility, especially the fertility awareness method. And I love the way that you present and all the analogies that you have. And I think everyone listening is going to walk away bursting with clinical pearls of knowledge (laughs) that they didn't know about themselves. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for being on. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.